Hello, I'm Donna Edda, and this is the Interested Podcast, a show that shares our collective wisdom to inspire health, love, and personal growth. This episode is for the productive geeks out there. I have the pleasure to chat with Razam and Jaji on finding happiness through life hacks and productivity. So Razam leads the global events for South China Morning Post. He has refined the art of setting expectations for optimal outcomes and multitasking hundreds of items per week. In this conversation, we talk about how to set up a system to get everything done, and more importantly, knowing when to say no. Can we really find happiness through productivity hacks? Listen to the Andrew Rasen story on how his rule of thumb made a massive impact in his personal life. Now, without further ado, here is Rasen Manjaji. Hi, Rosalind. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Donna. Our conversation today will explore the idea of finding happiness through life hacks and productivity. Now, let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm a Malaysian. I'm born in a city called Kota Kinabalu in Sabah, Malaysia. But I grew up in Ipoh, a town where they speak Cantonese, so I can speak Cantonese. That makes me makes my life in Hong Kong much easier. I grew up there, and then I moved to Singapore for my university studies, and、uh, stayed there for a decade before I moved to Hong Kong around 13 years ago. What did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? Well, to be very honest with you, my parents are divorced since a very young age. I have not seen my father for a very long time. My mother is actually a housewife, and、uh, she she has always been until she moved to U.S. about twenty years ago. So when I grew up in Ipoh, back in Malaysia, I didn't grow up with my mom. My mom and I were living、uh, separately in two different towns. I grew up pretty much independently、uh, since primary school days. I always value sense of independence and sense of freedom that I have. It can, honestly speaking, can go either way,、yeah. right? So, but I managed to keep myself mostly on the right path. But a lot of the stuff that I cultivated over the years are very much because of my school environment rather than a family background. What was your school environment like? I grew up in a、uh, in the primary school days. I grew up in a Malay-dominated school, so it's a, it's very local. And there were a lot of high expectation on what the school and the student can do. But in the final few years, where towards when during my final year in primary school, there seems to be a change in how the student population do well in their studies. They start to have some expectation on us, and I did very well in my government exam during my, during my primary school. And then I moved on to a missionary school. So a missionary school is a school that founded by the La Salian、uh, movement. It's an all boys school, and I really flourish in the school because it's very English speaking, and also it has a lot,、uh, a lot of history and legacy about、uh, the well-being of students. Students who do who do very well in curricular activities and in their studies. And during my secondary school days, I was a head boy, and I did、boy? very well in. A head boy. Oh, a head boy. I won the award, the best student of the year, and that's where my sense of independence and my productivity mania starts. Because to do well in that school, I need to be very careful about how I prioritize things, how I do certain things. But at the same time, you know, being a teenager, you want to be re- be rebellious. You want to do things your own way. I don't really care about what the world, especially your family or parents, comment about what you are doing in your lifestyle. So that's the background of the schools that I came from. 
What motivated you to be such a high achiever so early on? Generally speaking, I am a very, how should I put this? I was a very introverted person. I'm a bookworm. I like to spend my time in libraries, unlike many of my peers. That's a bit unusual for me since I was young. In my secondary school, when I start to be put into a position of a leadership, uh, to be a leader in the prefectural board, a leader in the school band, uh, in leaders and some of the societies and clubs that I joined, I start to feel the sense of responsibility and the satisfaction of that responsibility being done well, being executed well. I start to cultivate this sense and the need to achieve things in life. I'm not saying that, you know, I have always been an overachiever. Uh, I have failed some parts of my life, whether it's in the school or outside the school. But overall, uh, I cultivate a taste of what it means to be achieving something. My boss like to describe me as having a chip on my shoulder. I guess it's a blessing because yeah. it means that I always do well. But it is also a curse because I put unnecessary stress on myself that is not being put on by anyone else, but all by myself. Can you share a memory of a teacher that has influenced you? Wow, a uh, teacher who has influenced me. Well, during my the, the final two to three years, in my secondary school days, there is a new principal in town, so in the school. His name is Mr. Luis Lozario. I still remember him. He was a principal who was there to witness when I got my examination results you know, during the air levels equivalent back to in those days. And he was also there to support me in my scholarship application when I moved, when I moved to Singapore University. He was an exceptional figure, a disciplinarian. He liked things done a certain way. He's not afraid to carry a cane as he walked around around the school. So, Did he ever use it? <laughs> oh, yeah. He used it very liberally. Let me just put it in a very nice way. But there are also occasions whereby he rolled up his sleeve and does things with his students. Things like when he punished students by cleaning up the toilet, he will be there cleaning up the toilets with his students. Mm. He showed by examples. He's not, uh, you know, sitting in an ivory tower and being an authority that nobody has seen working on the ground. That's left a very strong impression of me. To be a good leader, yes, you need to have leadership quality, you need to be disciplined, you need to have certain charisma on you, but you also need to get down and dirty to really understand what the people who look up to you, the people under you, are actually experiencing and living day to day. Yeah, I love that. I want to dive right into the topic about finding happiness through life hacks and productivity. Before we start, we need to set the perimeter of this conversation with the question of what is your definition of happiness and success? Can you share your thoughts with us? Happiness and success. Well, happiness is when you know that you go to bed at night, you can sleep easily. That's not only simplistic, but it's true that when you are productive at work, productive in your life, that everything is accounted for, everything is resolved, everything has its own time and space to be addressed, you go to sleep with no worries in your mind. And to me, that's happiness. So for me, productivity and life hacks is, are the ways for me to be able to manage that expectation, manage that stress, not only from around me, but also within myself. So I know that there's a time and place for everything that's happening in my life right now. That is always very important to me. And that's where I find happiness is, to be able to go to sleep soundly with no stress. 
that gives me a lot of comfort just knowing that there's a time and place for everything. Exactly, exactly. So, what is your morning routine? My morning routine. I wake up about five in the morning, and then I will be having my coffee. I maybe have my first breakfast of the day, and then about five fifteen, five thirty. I'll go to the gym for a quick run. I mean, I'm not a fit person by any sort of measures, but I do want to like, get some my heart pumping early in the morning, just sweat it out. It's just right before six, I'll come back and I will start working already. Effectively, my workday starts at six o'clock in the morning. Six o'clock in the morning is when I clear my inbox and everything. That everybody start getting emails from me in the morning. By around seven, seven thirty, close to eight, I will be in office already. So I'm one of the early early birds in office, and my meetings and everything start at nine. And how long have you been doing this routine for? Huh? I think at least eight years. I remember because back then I was still in a different role, as we have discussed previously. I have been with the company South China Morning Post for a long time, thirteen years. And over these thirteen years, I have、uh, taken up eight different roles. I used to wake up at six thirty or seven if I'm lucky, and I start reversing my alarm five minutes. Every other day, over a period of a month, I managed to make myself to wake up at five thirty in the morning, and that sense of accomplishment was immense. And that really, that just showed me that the ability to have the few hours all to myself to do things I really want to do, that actually instill this belief in me that you know productivity is the reason for a lot of happiness to happen in my life. I totally agree with you.、Um, mm. I mean, I don't have to go to the office. I take care of the girls. But during the school time, I wake、right. up at five thirty. I make sure I have thirty minutes of meditation to myself in the、right. quiet before the day starts, so I can have a clear head and starting on the right foot. We're always very curious about meditation. There's one life hack that I never practiced. I never did because I don't think that I can do it. Do you find that that's actually helpful to start your day? It is absolutely amazing. There are so many different types of meditations, so I would highly recommend you exploring. There's different benefits. One is just resetting your nervous system. But another type of meditation that I have been doing is actually the intention and visualization. You kind of picture what's going to happen throughout the day, and to visualize that everything is happening to plan. A particular intrigue. By the visualizing what's going to happen in、yes. the in the day itself at the start of the day, because for me it's like I look at my calendar, I know what's going to happen from six o'clock in the morning all the way to the evening. I know everything, but I do visualize what's going to happen. I just I just kind of like have a checklist on what's expected of me for the day. Okay,、uh, so for example, you're dealing with something that is really intense, right?、Mm. But when you do that visualization in the morning. You go in and you set the intention of, within this meeting, we're going to resolve this issue, and I'm going to anticipate this person with certain reactions and responses, and I will be able to act calmly and clearly to resolve it and have really open and flowy conversation. But what if something does not happen the way you visualize it? Does it derail your motivation for the rest of the day? It doesn't. See, the awareness is everything. 
So you're like, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I want to happen. And it didn't happen the way I wanted to. So then you notice your reaction. Am I angry? And am, am I sad? Am I disappointed in myself? You accept it. Rather than dwelling on, on that feeling and, and blaming yourself or blaming others. Thank you for the advice. I certainly will put it better in mind. Something I could jolly well benefit from. No worries. My yeah. next question is, what are the habits that make you a highly productive person? Is there something that comes to mind that you can just pinpoint, like this is why I can do so many things and manage so many people and get things done? Earlier on, I mentioned, you know, the key definition for me for being happy is to be able to go to sleep at night with no worry, no stress, because there is a time and place for everything. That is actually the end result of all the habit and routine discipline that I cultivate from reading the first chapter of a book. You have, we must have heard of this book before. It's called Getting Things Done. They call it the GTT Principle. Yes. So yeah, that is a very famous book. To be honest with you, I didn't read the entire book. I just read one chapter and that one chapter just changed my life. What? So yeah, it's just one chapter. I mean, though I still have the book. I still like dog ear the book on chapter two or something like that. I just read one chapter, I just put it into practice, and I didn't look back. I didn't even practice the whole GDT principles. What it means is this. I need to be able to cultivate a system where everything will be there when I'm ready for it. That's the whole mindset of my productivity system. I mean, it will be different for different people because you need to figure out what is the right system and the right routine and right process for you. So for me, is that I have this huge gun chart that actually compartmentalize my work and personal life and social life into chunks that have subgroups and sub-items on things that I need to do to achieve the goals of that particular chunk of goals. And with that, and with a timeline on a day-to-day basis, what is going to happen? That is my to go for the central database of what makes me productive. I'll give you an example. So let's say I have, for example, my wedding. So I put my wedding into this whole system. And weddings, you have chunks like invitation, you have venue, you have music and food and everything. So on all the subheads, I have different action items. I will know what I'm supposed to do this week and follow up by the next week. I'll put my notes into the gun chart. So every single day, I will just look at this gun chart and know that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do the next day and the day after that. At the end of the week, I'll review everything that I might have missed. I will uh, simply update the next thing I need to do or just move the, the things I have not done to the following week. So that gun chart gives me the peace of mind that no matter how much details I have to deal with, no matter how complicated a particular task is, I mean, a wedding is a very complicated project. Yeah. All the family politics and everything. So, <laughs> so if my friends are going to listen to this podcast, they will question me. But... I even put the f- names of my friends onto the gun chart to say that I make it a commitment that I'll see this friend once a month. So I will actually will mark it into the gun chart to say that when I'm going to make plans with this guy and then when I'm going to meet this person and once I'm done with that, I will mark the following month when I'm going to reach out and to set up another different date to meet up. So everything in my life has a place on the gun chart. What is a gun chart? Gun chart is an Excel spreadsheet whereby you have a task item, let's say, a weekly report and follow-up, for example. Right. And then on the right-hand side, as you scroll around, is a calendar. Like Then you just say, that okay, if this report 
has a deadline and then maybe a couple of days later I will need to you know send the report to someone a couple of days later I need to review the feedback from this someone so every single line item like in this case you know doing this regular report I will know what are the milestones to get this whole thing completed my gun chart at work has hundreds of roles because I manage so many different projects and within each project they will have uh, subcategories of different tasks that I logically group them together. GANT is spelled as G-A-N-T-T. -T. It is a kind of tool that is used by project management professionals. The idea of having a place for everything, it's so good, even for your social life. Even for my social life. For example, if I promised Donna that two months later, I would love to have a beer with you to see how the reaction to my podcast is, it will appear on the gun chart. Everything has a place on the gun chart. And this is from chapter one? <laughs> from chapter one. So, so chapter one basically tells you that you need to have a system whereby everything that happens in your life, things that you need to do, everything is in one place. So that when you go to sleep, you know that everything you need to know about tomorrow or the day after, next week, next month, next year, will be all in that one place. So that gives me the peace of mind to go to sleep. Now, but to reach that one place, to put everything in one place, there are a couple of prerequisites that needs to happen. To me, there are only two main important points. Everything that you need to do, you need to set a time for it. Using the social activities, for example. Again, my friends will kill me because I'm saying this out loud and on the record. <laughs> so every week, I have a one hour time towards the end of the week. I will have a one hour, one and a half hour time dedicated to really look through my social to-do list. So the social to-do list is a list of all my friends' names and all that that I said that, okay, this person, I need to set up the dinner date, this person, oh, I miss his birthday, I need to send a belated wishes and all that. So I will set a time for that one hour, just going through my social to-do list. And the same concept applies for everything else, either your personal social life, your personal improvement, whatever things that you want to learn and cultivate, and as well as things you need to do at work. My calendar is always full, not because I'm always occupied in meetings, but I actually set up times for me to be able to do the work that I tell myself to do. How often do you review your gun chart? Is it at the end of every day or the beginning of every week? Uh, well, every single day I start my day by taking out all the things I need to do for the day from the gun chart. Then I will just repeat it every single day. But at towards the end of the week, every Friday, then I will look back on the past one week and plan for the following week. So I will move some items to the following week or create follow-up items in the following week. So like I said, to reach that, you need to be able to set up time to do, actually do those things. If you don't set up time, dedicated time in your calendar to do them, you will never happen. And this includes date night with your better half. You need to set time for that. If you don't set up time, yeah. it will never happen. If you don't set up time for gym, it will never happen. So that's, that's one point. The other point is that I'm a meticulous note taker. I really like to take notes. I, I talk to people when I in meetings, I go to briefing and stuff like that. But the discipline that you need to tell yourself to cultivate is that you need to be able to convert those notes into action items for your gun chart. If it's just a good to know, then you just archive those notes. But there's most of the time, the notes that I take actually will have a follow-up item that, and that goes to my gun chart. And that's how I know that I will not miss anything from meetings and from what my boss tells me to do, what my friends ask me to do, and the new ideas and projects that I suddenly pop up in my mind, I want to do everything, will go into my notes, then notes will be translated in action item, 
and this action item will go onto my gun charge. But is it overwhelming? Like just what you were this, how you were describing yeah. now, the notes from your boss, from your friend's request, and do you mostly say yes? Uh, no, uh, I can't because I mean every single day I have eight hours for work, four hours for social life, four hours on my own time, and eight hours of sleep. So I have finite time. So I need to be over time. I will be able to say no to half the things that. I was asked of me. That's actually brilliant because if it doesn't fit yeah. into the gun chart, then you just have to say no. That that's true. That is true. There are certain things that pops up to say that hey, maybe you should think about immigration to Portugal, for example, right? So a lot of Hong yeah. Kongers are considering that. I, I read that on SCMP, and I was like, okay, maybe I should find out more about what does it what it means to actually immigrate to Portugal. So I can put it on my gun chart, but where does it sit? Does it sit under personal improvement? Does it sit under retirement? Does it sit under general interest? If it doesn't sit under a big bucket that you design for yourself, probably it does not matter. So I ended up to say that, oh, okay, that note is just FYI, and I didn't do anything about it. How do you archive the notes that don't have an actionable item? Right now, I use Google Drive. So Google Drive have a lot of Google Docs. In my Google Docs, I have different folders uh, that actually I have people's name on it. Let's say, for example, I have a team of about 10 people reporting to me. And I meet up with them. I spend half an hour to an hour with them every single week. And all the things is being discussed, I actually put it into a notes form onto Google Drive. Once I have the notes and then I, after the meeting, I will go back to the notes and archive those things that are only for my information and translate those notes uh, that actually requires for my follow-up action into my gun chart. So I do it every single time. And that applies to update meeting with individuals. Also applies to project meeting for a particular project, in my case, it's all events because I'm, I run the events business for South China Morning Post. I always have buckets of information, buckets of notes on my laptop. How big of a chunk of time does it take? I spend about half an hour to an hour at the end of the week reviewing the items I have done and deciding on items I need to do in the next one to two weeks. So it's quite quick. But yeah, in the beginning, it took me a lot of time. I can spend an entire day creating a new gun chart for a new project my brain will start to connect dots that are not there, pulling dots that is not really supposed to be dots in the first place. That took a lot of time, but as you got, got to know your job better, there's certain templates you can create. There are certain rule of thumb, things you know that if this A happened, the risk result in B, this is a, a definite no. So there are certain things the rule of thumb you will build, you'll be able to make a decision on the fly as you update uh, your gun chart. Okay, I really like this rule of thumb concept so can you give me an example because i love this it's this game of elimination if it doesn't fulfill that criteria it's out so can you give us an example of this rule of thumb in business for example I mean, when you run a project you want the project to be profitable right so for me we have a cost when we run events and we have revenue when we run events in terms of ticketing or sponsorship etc when i decide on the particular item it can be like a partnership with certain society, it can be paying commission to a new sales channel and all that. My go-to question is always that, does it help me to achieve my profit margin goal at the end of the day? If yes, then okay, this goes on my gun chart. If no, if it's good to have because of personal reason, this is a friend, I should help out, but does it really help me? Then off the gun chart it goes. But the rule oh, nice. changes every time, depends on what you're doing. In my line of work, it's very easy because it's all revenue driven. But sometimes it's because, well, if the boss tell you to do something, 
chances are you need to do it, right? So so it just yeah. you just need to manage expectation when it gets delivered and all that. With my friends, it's always the case of whereby let's say it's someone whom you're not very close with in what you told wedding, for example. It's always a toss whether should you go to the wedding, especially if it's a destination wedding. The rule of thumb that I have for a situation like that is that would this person miss me if I don't attend the wedding? If the answer is no, then the answer is no, I shouldn't go. I can give a wedding gift, but I should not spend the time or the resources to really go all the way for the wedding because chances are this person will not miss me not being there. That's the rule of thumb that I have. Have you ever made a mistake on that? Of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes things look really good when it's an idea, something that you think that I definitely need to do it even if I have to bend the rules a bit. And I will do all I can. I spend all my time and energy into it. I ask my team members to really work on it. And at the end of the day, when that event, uh, that particular project being executed, you look at the PNL and was like, what have I just done? I mean, why, why did I spend months of effort on doing something that's not profitable, something that is actually stress everyone up because it's so out there and nobody really care whether I have done it right. or not. So mistake has been made. And whenever I'm tempted to repeat similar things in the future, I always recall back, this is not the first time you're being tempted this way. So I ought to le- learn my lesson. That's a really good tip. <laughs> I guess the, the idea is to just not repeat the same mistake twice, right? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you need to have the courage and the self-awareness to acknowledge that that was a mistake and not to defend your mistake, right? Sometimes it's, you just need to answer truthfully to yourself, was that a mistake? If it's a mistake, make sure you don't repeat it again. Would you actually sit down with your team and evaluate a failed project and, and talk about how you can prevent it next time? Generally in business, they, they always say that you should always debrief about things that have failed and make sure that you don't repeat the same thing again. But this is what I discover. When you debrief, you always debrief things that went wrong. You don't debrief on things that went well, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's a human nature to always look at, you have all these projects, all these different revenue items, and you always go for the thing that you are below target rather than looking at things that are actually above target. So it's just human nature. And when you talk about things that is not as good or as ideal or as successful as thought it ought to be, chances are people are very defensive. They will try to defend why they are not the reason why the whole project failed in the first place. So I always play it depends on the people that I deal with, the stakeholders of the particular projects. That's to say that if I go into this debrief and everybody can be defensive, it's not productive use of my time. I'd rather not yep. do it. But if there's a real reason, real reason for us to debrief and really learn our lesson, and I know that this group of people will be open-minded to acknowledge that, hey, you know, we didn't do well here. So if there's a real a sense that there's a real sharing session uh, waiting to happen, then I will have it. Now let's move the conversation to working from home. Oh. <laughs> The past month or so has been crazy in Hong Kong. Oh my God. (laughs) I am very curious. What are some of the productivity hacks that you have been using for working at home? Okay. Let me be very candid with you. I'll tell you how I feel working from home and pray that my boss is not listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) So in the beginning, it's like, you know, in the past, before this whole public health crisis happened in Hong Kong, Working from home is an occasional perk that you request from your boss because you need to wait for, you know, whatever they need to do at home, you need to stay at home. 
So when I got to know that, oh, for the I need to get to work from home the entire week, I got so excited. It means you can sleep in, wake up anytime you want. You can have a leisurely breakfast. Just go into emails whenever you want. You can watch Netflix. You can eat. You can take a nap. <laughs> Nobody really knows. And when you work for when when it's a city-wide, company-wide work from home situation, chances are productivity will go out of the window. That's to say, you know, meetings will get yeah. cancelled. An essential regular meeting will get rescheduled and things like that. And a lot of people will just do emails update or Slack updates and things like that. In the beginning, I failed spectacularly to deliver any any real results for the first couple of days because I, I just pick out on the couch and look at Netflix and only respond to emergencies, send wire messages, and that's it, right? So in the end, I told myself that you know what, I'm a team leader. I need to set the examples. I know this is unprecedented time the city is facing. Uh, business is fairly challenged, but at least things within my control will be my self-discipline and my productivity. So the first thing I did is that I wake up uh, at the same time, I take a shower and change into proper clothes, assuming that I will go into a video conference at any time. So that really helps me to really cultivate the discipline to sit in front of my laptop and start working as if I'm in, in the office. And that really helps. And set time, clear time for breaks, like I've intended to watch Netflix for half an hour. I know when I can do it so that I won't always feel tempted. And if I know that I can have a leisurely two-hour lunch from 12 to 2, I set the time for it and I won't feel tempted at other times. So that regimen helped me to stay kind of productive during the work from home arrangement for the past couple of weeks. How do you manage team meetings when you're working from home? We are very fortunate about three years ago, uh, we started our digital transformation, and one of the one of the key thing is to enable the uh, mobile workforce. That is to say, no matter where you are in the world, whether you're on the road or you're different parts of the countries, and all that, you are able to actually work and be productive. So we have a suite of technologies that help us with that. And one of that is the use of Google Suite, we call it G Suite, and part of the G Suite is this program called Google Hangout, where we can have video conferencing, even if you have 10, 20 people in a team. So for my team meetings, uh, we still have a regular team meeting every week. We actually use that platform, Google Hangout, for a 10-person meeting. There's some caveat about doing team meetings like that. Of course, it's impossible. You try to share agenda way beforehand so everybody is prepared. That's a given. Um, other things that I find very important for work from home arrangement is that you must turn on your video. I think a lot of people do not want to turn on video for whatever reason. But the fact that you make it a rule that you turn on your video, it actually motivates them to get ready for the meeting. I need to dress up. I cannot be like... Be in the pyjamas. Yeah, in the pyjamas. And I didn't brush my teeth. My face is a rag, <laughs> you know. As much as getting them to prepare for the meeting, but also react to the facial expression, the body language during the team meeting. And that is the thing that has been missing when people are working from home. So I made the rule that everybody turn on their video even if they're not speaking. They can turn off the mic so there's little audio disruption as possible, but uh, they will turn on the video so we can see each other. In all these years as a professional, what is the biggest obstacle that you have faced and how did you overcome it? Uh, I'm currently in my eighth role in SCMP. I'm now the, the head of the events business for SCMP. I took over the job in September uh, last year uh, effectively in the role in early October. There is a big project we're actually supposed to run for the first time, our flagship event called the China Conference in the United States in New York in early December. 
that left me two months to do something like that. When I took over the job, I thought that this this project is being shelved, but apparently it's not. So so I have to execute something that is very challenging, not only because of the scope of, of the project, but also the significance of this event. You are hosting an event called the China Conference in the age of US-China trade war with a US president that is very not friendly to China in New York City. I have to literally start everything from scratch two months out. I mean, any conference producer, any events professional will tell you that is a tall order. So for me, that has been one of the biggest challenge of my life because there's, there's no precedence, there's no past history for me to refer to, there's no track record, there's nothing. There's just expectation that this is going to be difficult. When I started with that, the first thing I did is to set expectation, to say that, okay, let's all uh, my bosses and my peers and my team acknowledge that this is going to be a difficult project to achieve. So although that there were certain hopes for KPIs of what this, this event is supposed to uh, aim for, let's tone it down a little bit. Let's set our expectation right. So I managed to set a couple of um, you know, expectations on cost, revenue, number of people attending, and the, the scale of the event, all that, set it right to somewhat of level that I'm comfortable with. The first week I was in the job, I flew to New York and I see all the people that I need to see to get my hands dirty, to get all the information, all the connections, all the relationships I need to make this event a success. I did that and I come back and it become a regimented nature that every single day, new decisions need to be made, new plans need to be made, old plans need to be shelved, and every single day I will have a round up to say that, what's next, what's next, what's next. So I do that consistently for four to five weeks to six weeks, and then in early December, I flew the entire team to New York City to run the event, and it was a success. And But that has been a terribly challenging part of my career so far, and it has been a pinnacle because of the, the seniority of the speakers that we have, the limelight from the government, from both US and China on the event itself, and what kind of track record is set for future events, but also what it means for SCMP expansion in the United States. So that has been very, very satisfying for me. Now, we're going to zoom out a little bit and get a bit personal. So how, if at all, have you personally changed as a professional in the last five years? Well, I have been more candid about how my work and life boundaries have been blurring and blend into one another. So let's say when I'm unhappy about certain things in a personal life and that kind of spill over in my professional life, I have been very candid about this to my bosses and to my team as well. I should tell them that uh, no, this week I'm really off because certain things happen at home, right? So the ability to cross a barrier between professional and personal life has been something that is very obvious to me in the past couple of years. And the reason why I took that step as much as because of my personality, I'm comfortable in sharing details like that, is that I think that sense of vulnerability, the sense of that your boss, this colleague is also human. He has emotion, he has he experienced upset, disappointment, and things like that in his private life. It makes me build better rapport and trust with people that I collaborate with at work. And that actually helps me to build social capital in the company. And that has been instrumental to the success that I have in my work in my current company. That is really inspiring to be able to see you as a 
also as a human with feelings and ups and downs and highs yes, and lows in yes. life. So when you know when when you say that I need some time off work, my boss can't say that. I don't know what's happening with him. I don't know why he's so upset and he just want to time off from from work. So he will know. Let me give you a very personal example. <clears throat> earlier this year, I made a decision to see my father. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on this conversation, that uh, my parents was divorced uh, since I was very young. In fact, I have not seen my father since I was eight years old. I have not seen my father for 30 plus years. Earlier this year, I made the decision that my father is not getting any younger. I should go and find him and see him in person. I made the decision, which is a very big step for me to see a man who used to love me as a father who I've not spoken to for 30 plus years. So I went to see him uh, back in Malaysia and it was a life transforming experience for me. And then I came back to Hong Kong after seeing uh, my father for a couple of hours in a very short trip. One month after that meeting, my father passed away. It felt as if like he has been waiting for me to see him and he's kind of like fulfilled one of his last wishes and then he moved on. Mm. And it was such a shock to my system that I was, I did not know how to react because there's no precedent on what, how one should react in a situation like that. But the people around me, especially at work, has been very understanding <clears throat> because my boss knows that I'm doing something like this. My peers know that. My team knows that's doing something like this. So when my father, the news of my father passed away came by, all of them has rallied around and, and basically tell me that, go off, take the time you need to recover from this. So my bosses let me take some time off. My team effectively reassured me and said that, don't worry boss, we will take care of everything here. You do what you need to do. And I realized that all this understanding, empathy would not have been offered to me if I'm not been vulnerable in the first place myself. If I'm not been sharing about what's happening to me in my personal life with the people around me. So that has been, been a very life-changing experience for me. And it actually reinforced my belief that one should be courageous enough to be more vulnerable at work. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's really powerful. When you saw your father, how was it transformative for you? It's transformative because it's a decision that just difficult to make. I mean, there's no reason why should I see a man who is my father who I've not seen for 30 plus years. So there is really no upside for me to see this person. I was thinking, I need to give myself a very good reason why I should see him again. And I realized that deep down that I have maybe had some unresolved father issues. Something that's over the back of my mind. At the end of the day, another one of those rule of time, should I put this on my gun chart, right? I asked myself, this is such a big decision. Personally, would I regret it if I had not done it? That's to say, if my father passed away today, would I have regret not seeing him for the last time? The answer is a very simple yes. So I then I put in the motion, I went to see him. And that was life transforming because I realized that I can make a decision that is that significant, impactful personally, for not for my own benefit, but for his benefit. So I want to be able to see him in person and all that. And he was healthy when I say see him. So when I came back and one month later he passed away, I was like, okay, the very rule of time that I use to make the decision to see him has come to pass. It's become a reality. And that was, yeah. that was such a shock to me. So I was like, I need to be able to make similar decisions in the future that say that, would I regret it if I don't do it right now? And I don't mean like, would I regret to buy this Hermes bag if I don't buy it right now, you know? It's not, it's not <laughs> material, things like that. It's really 
deep things that yeah. really matters to your life. That's why I say that that has made a very life-transforming decision for me. That's beautiful. Now I'm going to close the interview with some rapid-fire questions. Okay. So you don't have to think too hard, but here we go. What is the book that you have gifted the most or have left the strongest impression on you? Okay. Uh, personally, I love to read chicklets. So <laughs> <laughs> Sophie Kinsella, Maria Kies are my favorite authors. And I always give this book to my friends who love chicklets as well. Uh, but in terms of the book that left the strongest impression, it's definitely the book Getting Things Done. So that book has actually changed my life. What is the best lesson your dad or your mom taught you? My mom always say this in Cantonese, What it means is yeah. that everything will work out in the end. You just have to do your best. And that's something that I have been, that's, that's some, one of the best lessons that my mom always taught me. Love that. What is your worst fear? That I might not be able to provide for my loved ones, to my family, to my better half to my mom and all that in the future as they grow older, so I need to provide for them. There's always a fear in me. It should go on my gun chart and do something about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? Hmm. It's so strange. To, you know, it's no longer giving advice to your 16-year-old self at 30 years old, and it still makes <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> okay, I guess it would be self-doubt and confidence. I mean, confidence is like a house, you know. You need to build it day by day and know that the best day in your life is yet to come. Nice. Well, Ruslan, thank you so much for your time today. Where can my audience find you? Well, I run a blog that has been dormant for a couple of years already, but it's actually document a lot of my life in my 20s and 30s at ruslan.net. Uh, I also run a personal newsletter that has been uh, inactive for some time, a few, a couple of months, uh, at russlanwrites.com, uh, and that's my personal newsletter. And that is where I actually uh, practice writing as a form of therapy, like, you know, really try to put things into paper so that I know what I'm thinking and unbutton my emotions and all that. Yeah. Any closing thoughts for the audience about finding happiness through life hacks and productivity? Hmm. Um, I have to say, being happy because you're productive sounds like a contradiction. Some people feel that they will be happy when they have nothing to do. They take a leisurely holiday, they take a day out and not do anything and being happy. So what I'm trying to say is that being happy by being productive is not for everyone. You need to be a go-getter, an overachiever, someone with the need to achieve that actually will be empowered because the fact that you're being productive makes you happy. So that will be my closing thought of the day. Brilliant. Thank you so much again. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. As Raslin said, productivity is not for everyone. But if it is for you, Raslin and I would love to hear what's the single biggest insight that you are taking away from this conversation today. And how can you put it into action right now in your life? The best conversations happen after the episode over at interested.blog or my Interested Podcast Facebook page. So go on over there to access the show notes and leave a comment. I would love to hear from you. Subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend.